Today is Mother's Day, as you know, and uh, it's, it's a day to celebrate with these families. It's a day to be very glad, but it's also a day of, um, of quite honestly, sorrow for many people. Some people are um, remembering a mom that they've lost maybe even this year. Others are parents uh, who have buried a loved one, I mean a, ch- a child. We've had two families in our church recently buried children. Others have lost a mother, and they have young children. And there are people here today who silently go under the pain of wanting a child or another child and have not been able to conceive. So it's, it's a painful day for many people, and we need to be sensitive to them and as we rejoice with others. And so let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the the body of Christ, and thank you that you're the shepherd in Christ, and you hear our prayers. Thank you that Sometimes when we just are so emotionally spent, we can't pray. The Bible says the Holy Spirit intervenes for us with groans too deep for words. And Lord, we, we groan with um, sorrow and empathy for those who are struggling with trying to get pregnant. We, we groan with those who are desirous uh, of holding a baby but cannot. And for those who have buried a child, how horrific, horrific for those who've lost a mom or those who've lost a wife and a mom. So, God, make us prayerful uh, on these days that are days of celebration for those who are hurting. In Jesus' name, amen. I was at the church early this morning before I went home and took a shower, and there were some kids already here, family of three little children, aged girl 10, boy 8, another boy 3, and I walked out and said, Happy Mother's Day. And the three-year-old looked up at his older sister and said, you're not a mother, are you? (laughs) And before she could answer, the middle brother said, no, silly, she's not a mother, but she's a daughter of a mother. So I guess you can be celebrating Mother's Day in many different ways. Well, in March of 1938, there was a movement by the Hitler government to begin their gobbling up of nations when they seized Austria. And there were German generals in the Third Reich ready to really assassinate Hitler and take over because they thought he was a madman, but the Allies did not respond. They basically sat back. But there was a man in the House of Commons named Winston Spencer Churchill. And this is what Churchill said In March of 1938, he said, For five years I have talked to the House on these matters, not with very great success. I have watched this famous island descending incontinently, fecklessly, the stairway which leads to a dark gulf. It is a fine, broad stairway at the beginning, but after a bit, the carpet will end. A little further on, there are only flagstones or broken tiles, and a little further on, these break beneath your feet. He says, this is a position that is the terrible transformation that has taken place bit by bit. Transformation bit by bit. Another Brit by the name of C.S. Lewis wrote a book a few years later entitled The Screwtape Letters. And, And Lewis is representing the demonic attacks upon 
the believer in the church, and he says, accordingly to the mouth of the devil, he says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts, just bit by bit by bit. And so we, we come to this study that's based upon us being faithful to the living God, and Paul has just written his magnum opus, the book of Romans, and chapters 1 through 11 are all about the mercy of the living God expressed for us in Jesus Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, he begins the application statement we saw last week, I plead with you, I beseech you, I beg you, I command you, that's what the little word beseech means, I beseech you according to the mercies of God, according to all the mercies of Christ, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. And as you do this, he says, verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. Here's my thesis this morning. We're not conformed to this world as we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the renewing of our minds happens as we see the glory of Christ and we respond to that out of our own personal need. The glory of Christ responding out of our personal need. We're in this study called Forever Faithful. It's based upon a passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read it to you. Starting in verse 19, it says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that is open for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, the church, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Because he is forever faithful, we're called to be faithful. And as we understand these things, we live with clarity. Clarity being the ability or the quality of being clear-minded and circumspect and understanding life. And this clarity of understanding the character of the triune God and what he's done for us and our calling to live as stewards leads to unity in the body of Christ and leads to action in the community and the world or to charity. Clarity, unity, Charity, and that's, that's, that's what we're, we're about. So, so life transformation happens. Nonconformity happens as our minds are renewed under the hand of God and we respond out of our need for Him. Let me read a few verses. I'm going to be in 2 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 4, back to 2 Corinthians 4. So in 2 Corinthians 3, the, the Apostle Paul writes this, verse 15 and following. He says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. The Old Testament was preparatory. The Old Testament points to the fulfillment of Messiah in Jesus. If you just stop in the Old Testament, there's a veil over your heart. He says, but when one continuously turns, that's what the word means, turns time after time, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Present tense, hear that? Being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And as we, as we continuously behold, as we continuously turn, continuously hold, we are being transformed. That's that's where I get my my statement. So, So transformation happens as we continuously behold the glorious mystery of God fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul hits this theme again in Ephesians chapter 4. He says in verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So it says, you know, the people who turn from the clear revelation of God around them, and they say no to the character of God, become darkened in their understanding. They become alienated from the life of God because their hearts grow progressively hard. Now, I think this takes place all around us. Romans 1 says that the character of God, His invisible attributes are clearly seen in creation. You walk out and you say, look at that oak tree. Or isn't it incredible that the earth just tilts this much and so we're not burned up and it tilts just this much so we're not frozen to death. Look at the miracle of babies for heaven's sake. And, and, but, but what happens is people say, they turn away from the evidence that there is a great creator God, and they say no. And when you say no, your heart gets darkened. I was, I've been amazed. A few years ago, we had this furor about intelligent design, and people were writing bromides against it. And, and uh, intelligent design basically is, is the belief that there is an intelligent design or a created order behind the creation that we see. There is, to quote Aristotle, a primary mover. Or to quote Parmenides before him, nothing comes from nothing. There's got to be something. It doesn't define God. It doesn't seek to say God is this or God has spoken. It's just a basic rudimentary statement. There is design around us. And people acted, many academics spoke out and said, we can't do this. This is horrible. And I was just going, Really? I had lunch with a guy who's a PhD in esoteric science from Cal Berkeley. And I said to him, you're, help me understand this. He started to laugh. And he said, I have contemporaries who are vehemently opposed to intelligent design. He said, it's not because of science. He said, it's because they don't want to open the door that much and say, there's a possibility there is a God to whom I might be accountable. You see, for us who know the cross, we glory in the fact that there is a God who has made the heavens and the earth, and he's triune. And in the fullness of time, he became a baby and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins. And he ascended into heaven after he rose from the dead and his, poured his Holy Spirit into our hearts. And we cry out, Abba, Father, it is glorious for us. But, but hear me. Hardening of the heart in the believer happens when God says this and we say no. God says, forgive. We say, I'm not going to forgive. 
God says, don't speak disparagingly of this person, and we do. God says, pursue a life of purity, and we do not. And when that happens, we call forth upon our lives the absence of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never leaves us. But we call forth for uh, the, the, the lack of the anointing and the empowering and the blessedness of the Abba Father in our life. It is a very serious issue. I think of Proverbs 4 that says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that grows brighter and brighter until full day. But the path of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Think about that. I know people that are much more intelligent than I'll ever be in three lifetimes. But they've said no to the character of God. They mock the creator God, and they do not know over what they stumble. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It grows brighter and brighter and brighter until full day. In the Old Testament, there's a story about a man named Samuel who had two reprobate sons who were priests named Hophni and Phinehas, and they were immoral, and they stole, and one day Israel went into battle and took the ark into battle, and the Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of the Lord, was seized by the Philistines, the bad guys. And Hophni and Phinehas were killed in battle. And a runner came back, and 98-year-old dad, Eli, was sitting down, and he said, what's gone, what's happened? He says, well, I hate to tell you this, but your sons have been killed in battle. And he says, what are the Ark of the Lord? He said, the Ark of the Lord has been captured by the Philistines, something they couldn't even dream would happen. And it says that Eli fell off his chair and broke his neck and died in sorrow. And Phineas had a daughter, and she was getting ready to have a baby. She went to premature labor, and she gave birth to a child. And as she was dying, she died. Husband died. Father-in-law died. She died. And as she died, she said to the attendants, name the boy Ichabod, because the glory of God has departed. Now, Ichabod means the glory has departed. It's not a good name. If you're pregnant, do not name your son Ichabod. It's not a good name. That means the glory's departed. Hey, glory has departed. Get over here. It's time for supper. You don't want to do that to him. But what she was saying is the glory of God has departed. And I thought in my life that if I walk in disobedience to the known will of God, the glory of God departs. So be very careful. And so that's why we have to have this continuous renewal out of need. I go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. It says this. In their case, the God of this world has, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers that they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ. And Paul says, but what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, once you see the glory of God, Paul says, you're not concerned about your apostolic credentials or people puffing you up. You, you just want to say, behold, the glory of Christ. Verse 6, for, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light, the knowledge, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. For God who said, let, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So this is who we are. If I'm going to be transformed, I'm going to be a person 
who continuously beholds the glory of God in the face of Jesus and operate out of personal need. That's why our purpose statement as a church is to equip people to pursue Christ passionately to impact the culture. There it is. Equipping people to pursue Jesus passionately. The mercies of God gloriously revealed to us. Pursue Christ passionately, impact your culture. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know, how, how, do, we, how do we think this out? Let me give you an acrostic. It's very simple. It's M-I-N-D, mind. Renew your mind. Transform by the renewing of your mind. Four, four little steps just to think about. M stands for meditate, my little acrostic. Meditate. To meditate means you take the Bible and you think through it and you chew on it and you try to digest it piece by piece. So I'm going to suggest to you that as you think about this to pick out one verse a month for a year that is just loaded with the glory of Christ. And to think about it and to pray through it and to keep a little index card and, 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 and just to, to, to go through. For example, the verse I just read, first, or 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you say, God, I thank you, Almighty Creator God. I thank you that you said in your Trinitarian glory, let the light shine out of the darkness. And that same light that shone out of darkness and made creation has also shone in my heart by your goodness to show me the light of the glory of the goodness of God in the face of Jesus. Thank you, Lord Christ, that you are the ultimate revelation of the God who is. You are eternal God. There was never a time when you were not. You are one with the Father and the Spirit. And Holy Spirit, teach me the glory of Christ. And you just start praying that way. And you think that way. So you meditate. You get these truths into your heart and your mind. And then I is that you, 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 you be people who get an intentional reading thought. You pick up good literature in addition to the Bible and you think through them. I know we're in a blog age and a non-reading books age, but I like books. I've got a bunch of books at the bottom of the page. So let me mention two, just for example. This book is called The Sermon on the Mount by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who died in 1981, a Welch physician who became a pastor in London for 40-some years. Love Martin Lloyd-Jones, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, this book is about 500 pages, 550. They're just sermons in a book. So they're easy to read because they're sermons. It's not an academic treatise, but it's powerful. Matthew 5 to 7 gets it in your soul. You think about it. And if you read one sermon a week, which is 12 pages maybe in this little book, you knock it out in a year. Or a little bit more academic, The Cross and Christian Ministry by a guy named D.A. Carson. Anything these guys write are worth reading, okay? D.A. Carson, The Cross and Christian Ministry, 130 pages, read 10 pages a week. You can finish it in, what, three, three, four months. Boom, right here. So I just say, read, read well. Read stuff that gets you in the presence of God. Read, read material that says, you know, behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And thirdly, we... we 
we renew our minds out of need. Apart from the grace of God, we're undone. Apart from the grace of God, our families aren't held together. Apart from the grace of God, we can't go forward. I need the anointing power of the Holy Spirit to do anything for the Lord. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing of spiritual good, I think. He said, we need, so we operate out of need. If you, you, know, you, had, you had a rough patch in your life and you kind of a declension, you ought to get on your face and say, God, thank you for showing me the wickedness of my heart and how desperately I need you just to make it. Need. And the D stands for a definite time and place. I, uh, say in your mind, I, the first 20 minutes of the day, first 30 minutes of the day, or 30 minutes at night, but I'm going to spend time alone, quietly, reading the Bible, thinking, just, just asking God to bless you. Listen, Nonconformity to the world and transformation of life happen when you see the glory of Jesus. In the Gospels, there's a, a, a part where three of the disciples of Jesus go up on a mountain with him and Jesus is transfigured before them. It's the same word that's used for transform, same root word, transfigured, transformed. He's transfigured before them, and his clothes become dazzling white, and Moses and Elijah come down from the mountain, or down from heaven, representing the law and the prophets, and they talk to Christ about his coming passion, and they're saying, in essence, that, that every promise of the Old Testament hinges upon the cross, and the disciples were thunderstruck, awestruck. They went up the mountain thinking they're going up there with a peripatetic teacher who has some really good things to say and performance miracles, but they're really not sure where all this is going. And they, they see with, with dazzling accuracy, clarity, this is God in the flesh. Looking back, this is, this is, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And I read that and I said, have I been thunderstruck by the glory of Christ recently? the power of Christ, the movement of the Lord in my life. I, I need to get in the presence of Jesus. So let me, let me say, go over this. Why is this important? Why is this vitally important? Why does the Apostle Paul in this book, this is book of books, people say, begin this section of application by talking about spiritual worship and not being conformed but being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Why is this important? Because we've got to change. There's a man who was here in the first hour, known for many years, and he says, you know, the Bible, people are always saying, I want to get back to the first century church. He says, we're heading there. So the first century church was a minority in a hostile culture, and they, they, they said, I think that's where we're heading. And I thought for years, ah, I'm not so sure, but I think he might be right. Well, we, we need to be people who gird up our minds, as 1 Peter 1 says. Think clearly. been around a while. I have never seen so many dark clouds on the horizon as I see now for our, for our country, our culture. Now, the thing about dark clouds, if you've been around and observed weather, sometimes dark clouds dissipate, and it's, this may dissipate. Sometimes in the history of the church, the dark clouds are a prelude to revival. That's what I'm praying for. A giant, a giant turning unto the Lord and a reformation of the church and the culture. Sometimes the dark clouds are a harbinger of a storm. 
I don't know if it's going to dissipate, revival or storm. There's a man that uh, has met much of the church for about six decades now, a guy, this guy, James Dobson. And this past Monday, he wrote an article that I read early in the morning and several people sent me later that day. And, but this is what he says in that article. So he thinks about the Supreme Court decision on redefining marriage. And, and so, well, he may be overstating or he may not be overstating, but just listen to what he says. Barring a miracle, the family that has existed since antiquity will likely crumble, presaging the fall of Western civilization. This is a time for concerted prayer, divine wisdom, and greater courage than we have ever been called upon to exercise. So, so here, I think he's right on several fronts. People say to me frequently, what will you do if, fill in the blank, what if you do if you don't, what if you do, what will you do? I, I say, well, you know, if God, if the clouds dissipate, God brings revival, or we go into an increasing prophetic minority, which could happen, I'm going to get up tomorrow and get on my knees and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of life and life everlasting. God, speak to me by your Holy Spirit. Now get up, I'm going to read the Word of God, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to walk in faithfulness. Because believers are called to walk in faithfulness and to leave the results with a great God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're called to be faithful people. There's a guy named Fred Barnes. I love reading Fred Barnes. He's a, he's a columnist. and He wrote an article this week in the Wall Street Journal where he said this. He said, this coming election is the most important election, even more so than 1980. Now, if you remember 1980, and some of you do not, some of us do, in 1980, we were in the economic doldrums. In 1980, the Soviet Union seemed to be overrunning the whole world. In 1980, we were, as a nation, in a fetal position. And a guy named Ronald Reagan was elected president. And I look back on that and I see the unemployment and inflation was at 18% combined. And it was a bad time. But Barnes says we're in a worse place today than 1980. And I don't know if he's, a, if he's right or wrong. But when people like that who are clear thinkers make those statements, I say, wow. But I, I keep going back to well, whatever happens, we're called to be faithful. We're called to be people who are forever faithful because God is faithful we're called to be faithful because as Hebrews 10 says once again let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful there's a little book by a woman named Sabine Reichel she was born in 1946 her Mom was Lithuanian, her dad was German, her dad never talked about the war. She was born in Hamburg, raised in Lithuania, never, never talked about the war, what he did. And as an adult, she found out that her dad, for a number of years, was very involved in the Nazi party. 
And then he kind of walked away the last year or so. But he was very involved in the Nazi party, very involved in pushing their agenda, very involved in believing in ethnic cleansing, very involved in so forth and so on. And she was deeply ashamed. And so she wrote this book entitled, What Did You Do During the War, Daddy? And she said, I, I lived with shame and guilt and regret because my dad was an unrepentant Nazi all of his life. He never came out and said, I was wrong, I repent. And she said, I live with that shame. And I, th I thought, you know, what will my grandchildren say to me in 20 and 30 years, 40 years, if I'm still alive in 30, 40 years? Granddad, what did you do? What did you do when the sanctity of human life was trashed? What did you do when God's preordained pattern for the family as a husband and a wife, male and female, was ridiculed in culture? What did you do? What did you, did you fight for not only racial justice, but racial reconciliation? Did you hear, as we heard this morning, did you cry out for those who are orphaned and who cannot protect themselves? What did you do? I say to us as a church, you know, what will we do? So this is important. The second reason is important is there's always a tug of war between the world of flesh and the devil and God's spirit in my life. Like Westminster says, there's a continuous and irreconcilable war in my heart. And I need to run to Jesus every day. Thirdly, we live for the glory of God, the grandeur of God. But fourthly, we live for the generations to come. Now, now in, in two weeks, we're going to have a, a big service at 11 and 9.30. We're going to pack these rooms out, and we're going to see a proposed building undertaking that we want to go forward with. It involves uh, building a sanctuary and this space will be dedicated to contemporary worship with some better acoustical issues in here for them so they can worship in this place. And we'll see the church grow that way by God's grace. We're going to ask you to approve a welcome center or a common area, a covered area between the sanctuary and these buildings where people can gather for greetings and, and fellowship and to see announcements about ministry to impact our culture. These buildings, I think, are important to sharpen people to send them out. We're trying to do it economically. We want to do it in such a way that, that our, our debt stays here or even goes down. And our debt, we're, we give about 5.5% of our budget to debt. Most churches our size give 20 to 32%. We're very conservative. But I think this is the next step, church. And, I, right, and we're, right now we have 27 to 28% of our people who have participated in this. You haven't give, been given the opportunity. We want, we want everybody to participate in this. They said because they said we, we want, we just want to go forward. And we want to do it to the glory of God. And we want to do it as God's people. So that, 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 that's coming. So listen. I began with Churchill. I'll close with Churchill. So March, the Nazis gobble up Austria. September, they seize the economic, industrial part of the Czech Republic. And so in a flurry of activity, the Prime Minister of England, France, Mussolini and Hitler meet in Munich and they sit across the table from each other and Neville Chamberlain says, well, we'll give you the Czech Republic, but no more. Adolf, he says, absolutely. 
I just want to protect the Germans who live in the Czech Republic. And then Chamberlain comes back, waving a piece of white paper in his hand. You've seen the history books. You've seen the newsreel. He gets off the plane, and he says, we now have peace in our time. But there was a bulldog in the House of Commons, a man who everybody thought was beyond his usefulness, a man who was the thorn in the side of the government. His name was Winston Spencer Churchill. He took to the floor, and he said, Mr. Prime Minister, you had the choice of war or dishonor. You chose dishonor, sir, and you will have war. And one year later, Germany invades Poland and plunges us into World War II. What I'm saying is the people of God and the way you live and the way you speak and the way you walk with brokenness and joy and humility, but the way you speak, it's not a time to go wobbly. It's a time to say, God, make us faithful. God, make us people who are concerted in our attitude and, and we have, we want to speak as unto you. So may we be faithful people. May our minds be transformed as they're renewed to see Jesus as we minister out of need. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and I thank you for um, allowing us as the people of God to be in this country and observe a day called Mother's Day. Um, we thank you for those who selflessly minister and care and love. And we, we thank you that as we celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day, uh, we thank you that the family was your idea. This family is not something that was hatched up uh, in antiquity, but the family, you said from the very beginning, God made them male and female. And you said in Genesis 2, for this reason, uh, a man will leave his father and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, so gender and family was your idea. And God, forgive us for tampering with your ideas. Uh, let us, as the people of God, be a brokenhearted, bold, Christ-centered, spirit-filled, prophetic minority. Um, teach us how to live. Teach us how to love. Uh, let us love and live in such a way that we truly represent Christ. Let us speak with grace and dignity and diligence and humility, but let us speak. So we, we bless you this day. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.